0: Hello everyone and welcome to the very first episode of Writer's Book Club Podcast for 2024, a very happy new year to you all. If you're new around here because, well, maybe listening to more writing podcasts was on your list of resolutions. Hello, I'm Michelle Barakoff and what we do each month around here is take a deep dive with one author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. However, today's episode is a little different in that we have a more wide-ranging chat about writing across a number of her novels with Joanna Nell. This is something I do once a year with an accomplished author who has several books under their belt. At the end of 2021, I did it with Marcus Suzak, and at the end of 2022, I did it with Kate Forsyth. Now, because I wanted to do a full year of episodes last year... I didn't do this interview with Joanna until December, so that's why it's coming out today. Just in time for the holidays, so you can have a listen on the beach or getting out for a walk or whatever else you're doing on your summer holidays. So you can catch the Kate Forsyth and Marcus Suzak episodes in the backlist on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to your podcasts, or you can just do a little bit of light Googling and I'm sure it will pop up. Now to my chat with Joanna Nell, we covered a lot of topics in this episode including voice, character development, dialogue, backstory, opening lines, outlining, structure, editing, plus she gave us a few excellent tips for what to do when you get stuck because we all get stuck sometimes don't we? Now, this is normally the section where I read the blurb for the book, but because we're covering all of Jo's books, let me tell you about her most recent release, Mrs. Winterbottom Takes a Gap Year, because it is the perfect read to curl up with during this holiday period. Husband and wife GPs, Alan and Heather Winterbottom, have worked in their idyllic rural practice for over 40 years, but they've decided to hang up their stethoscopes and retire. Joy. Celebration. Or not. While Alan dreams of growing his own vegetables, Heather dreams of exploring the Greek islands and seeking new adventures. When Heather decides to take a year off from her old life, from her marriage, from Alan, she embarks on a Greek odyssey full of unforgettable experiences, pitfalls and temptations. But could what's waiting for her back in Netherwood be Heather's biggest adventure yet? Books and Publishing said Mrs. Winterbottom Takes a Gap Year is like the best company, engaging, funny, and resoundingly human, and I couldn't agree more. Let me tell you a little bit about Jo before we dive into the interview. Joanna Nell is the internationally published best-selling author of five novels. She's also a doctor and an advocate for positive ageing. Her short fiction has won numerous awards and been published in magazines, journals and short story anthologies, including award-winning Australian writing. She's also written for the Sydney Morning Herald Spectrum and Sunday Life magazines. Originally from the UK, Joanna lives on the northern beaches in Sydney in a mostly empty nest with her husband and a creaky Labrador called Margot. Please enjoy my chat with the wonderful and very talented Joanna Nell.
1: Hello, Jo. How are you? I'm very well. All the better for speaking to you.
0: (laughs) It's so lovely to see you. I was hoping that maybe we could do this in person, but with my last attempt at doing that with My other Joe in my life, Joe Riccioni, it didn't go quite so well on the audio, so I need to really figure that out. So uh, here we are, both on the Northern Beaches, but meeting via Zoom.
1: That's wonderful. And I couldn't compete with the Frida Kahlo (laughs) curtain either.
0: (laughs) I'm sure you'd come up with something else. There always seems to be something that happens that makes us laugh. Joe, this is my final podcast episode for the year, and I always like to finish with An accomplished author like you, uh, we've had Kate Forsyth and Marcus Suzak in the past, you know, authors who have a body of work behind them are very accomplished at what they do. And to cover all of your novels, really, and just a a general rambling chat about writing across all the different uh, novels that you've written. Because even though you've written in a similar genre, let's say, um, and we can talk about what that genre is, I noticed as I was looking at things like structure and points of view that you do tend to mix it up a little bit. So, I'm quite keen to dive into those differences with you as well.
1: Well, you know, I love to talk writing craft, so yeah, let's get
0: into it. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe and I, full disclaimer, we're in the same writing group, and every two weeks, we are in the car together, going from the northern beaches over to Rosezelle to the New South Wales Writing Centre. and we have big writing chats. um so it's really nice to be able to bring this to the wider public, Joe, and l- give them an insight into our little car chats.
1: I wish, uh, you know, in some ways, I wish we could re- have recorded our car chats because we've had some great, uh, great discussions, haven't we, on the on route and on, on the way back again? Yeah, I know. It reminds me of that podcast. That, I think it was a video
0: series that Jerry Seinfeld did. Um, what was it called? Something like uh, comedians talking in cars. Getting coffee or something like that. It's like we could be writers getting coffee in cars, or I don't know. We'd have to we'd have to workshop that title, but something to think about. Now, Joe, I wanted to start off with a bit of a talk about theme and genre. Let's start very high level. And you have a couple of quotes at the start of your novel, The Last Voyage of Mrs. Henry Parker, and one of them is from The Old Man and the Sea by Hemingway. And the quote goes, no one should be alone in their old age, he thought. And this seemed to me to sum up some of the main themes that you do explore in your novels, the lives of older people, um, loneliness in its various forms. And I think also in a more meta sense, I think reading your novels helps many older people to not feel alone and to feel really seen. Can you tell us why you write about older characters and do those themes provide you with any kind of a framework for each
1: novel? Yes, as you say, I sort of seem to have developed almost uh, my own genre. Um, Certainly, there have been novels written with older protagonists before, but not very many. Um, and it certainly wasn't a conscious decision at the beginning. I wasn't clever enough to see that there was a gap in the market that I could exploit by writing these um, characters and, and these novels. Uh, it, it sort of came more organically than that. And I think I've always had an interest in people older than me. I grew up spending a lot of time with my grandparents and their friends. And I was sort of fascinated, you know, observing them. And I I struggled to make friends of my own age at school. So I suppose I always felt more comfortable with older people. I found them less, uh, less judgmental, sort of kinder in a way. Uh, to, to the young the young me and and that extended when I became a doctor I think my interest uh you know felt fell more on on care of the elderly and I spent a lot of time working in aged care facilities and nursing homes and around people who were you know older than retirement age and I you know I realized that life does not end at 65 you know and and for many it's the beginning of an exciting new chapter it comes with its challenges but you know in terms of writing they say write what you know and at the time i very first started writing i was in this environment so i suppose it just came naturally that i would write these characters but when i think about it as a writer it really makes sense older characters are so much more rounded and nuanced. They have, you know, ready-made backstories which can include whatever you you want, really, you know, falling in love, you know, experience of wars and uh, loss and pain and, and joy and that that maybe a younger character wouldn't have. Um, and there are as many stories as there are people of that age. So I think I'm just not done exploring my own ideas about aging yet quite yet but somebody did say I think you've you know you've developed a new genre I don't know what we call it but uh yeah stories of of older characters
0: yeah and it's also been described as um a a sub-genre of uplit I guess as well with your unique blend of heart and humor I always have a bit of a cry and a Rollicking laugh with your novels, particularly in the last one um, with that sex scene that uh, everybody's talking about. I remember when you gave it to us to read in our writing group. I had to leave the table because I was laughing so hard. I was worried I was going to vomit.
1: <laughs> so funny. I'm not sure that's a good <laughs> if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I honestly I couldn't breathe
0: and and because I was laughing so much and it just tickled my fancy and it still does whenever I need to be cheered up I just pull Mrs Winterbottom off the shelf and have a read of that scene Um, I just love it so much so yeah in terms of providing a bit of a framework I guess it does doesn't it because it gives you those themes Mm. to work with throughout all of the
1: novels. That's right, yeah, so I think one of the, you you mentioned sort of Uplit before, and I wasn't aware that I was writing Uplit until my publisher told me that's what it was, and I suppose that the very first of those sort of uplit novels that was described as such was Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. And and it's sort of come to be a little bit of a a subgenre and and often defined by a lonely character who's sort of isolated from community with, with problems or with quirks and finding a community and sort of coming together. and and often exploring sort of darker themes, but with a lighter touch with with episodes of of humour. And it's sort of, they tend to be underdog stories. So this is perfect really for when you have older characters, because often they are you know uh, they are alone and loneliness is a a terrible thing it's um you know it's as bad for your health as smoking is really you know and it causes this sort of chronic stress reaction and inflammation in the body that you know is uh, a marker for virtually all diseases and can cause premature death so this was one of the things i was noticing with a lot of my patients was 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 loneliness and i suppose it was my desire to make people feel better whatever is to create for my characters a community and to you know give them that social connectivity that um, you know that we know is so important for for healthy aging. A lot of my characters have started off lonely not necessarily um, alone because I think you can be lonely in uh, when you're surrounded by people there's one of my characters who's in a nursing home and she's lonely despite being surrounded by other residents and another character my most a recent one, Heather. She's lonely within her marriage, uh, even though her husband's there. So, uh, you know, it is one of those, uh, you know, those sort of universal themes. And yes, it gives a almost gives a, a starting point for the scaffold of the structure to then uh, create connections and to to, to give that um, character an arc where they, you know, end up with with connection. Yeah, which which brings me to that.
0: Connection side of things. And we have, you know, the nursing home that is an obvious first choice, like with the single ladies at the Jacaranda Retirement Village. And then we have the tea ladies with their kiosk, um, the boat for Mrs. Henry Parker that provides her with that community. So I guess setting also plays into that.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. So I think you know, the, another of the hallmarks of Atledge is that they are, you know, just sort of small. Community is sort of recognizable. Um, the ship, for example, the character, Mrs. Henry Parker, she she meets people there. That's almost a gift as a, as a writer because it's a closed community. And yes, at the tea shop and the nursing home. So there are people that uh, are the characters, other characters that you can bring in who are already within that community, um, but it's just introducing them, in, introducing the characters to each other.
0: Yeah. And even with Mrs Winterbottom, you know, you've got the village as well, which calls to mind, you know, all of those beautiful English village shows that we've watched over the years, the mystery, cozy
1: mystery. Yeah, yeah. cozy mystery.
0: Um, We don't have, well, there's a drug deal that goes down. I mean, that's probably the most crime that goes on in Netherwood. Um, We weren't going to talk about setting, but just thinking about it now, that seems to be a really important part of your novels as well, and thank you for that explanation. I think that there's something that you do need to think about um, in terms of creating the community that's going to be around your main characters. Yeah,
1: it's about making it easy for yourself, almost. I think in in creating a, a certain setting, but not making it too too vast. Obviously, a closed community. You can have very different characters. Every little community is going to be a microcosm of the you know of the wider world. And you know, in for instance, in a retirement village, really all people have in common is that they're probably aged over 65 and they live in the same area. But you're gonna have all types of, of characters. So um it does I don't think it limits you in terms of sort of character development, but it does make it um a little bit easier uh, in terms of sort of creating a, a structure and a setting. Joe, I love the way
0: your novels open. I always feel like I'm drawn straight into your world that you're writing about, and I think you achieve a lot with the opening pages of your novels. We very quickly get a strong character voice and a sense of time and place. How do you go about writing your openings?
1: yeah look we are always told aren't we the opening sentence is the you know it's really really important uh you know the beginning of a book and from a reader's point of view i think their decision to whether to carry on or not is often uh you know you know you've got to hook the reader in that first couple of sentences um you know and i think not only a hook but you know perhaps putting something a little bit out of the ordinary that's going to catch their attention and and their curiosity And for me, I have to get that first sentence right, really, before I can move on. The rest, you know, it it can work itself out. But often when I start the novel, that first sentence, for me, it tells me everything I need to know about, you know, the, the character, something that's unique about them, you know, a little bit of a hint of the setting and what the themes might be. And I think once I nail that, it really helps me to have found the the voice that I want uh, for the novel. Um, so the first line of The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village, that for me came very early in the book. And I think it's one of my favourite first lines of my books. I have plenty of first lines. I think we all have our favourite first line of novels that we remember, and some of them you know, we, we may not remember even who wrote the novel, but we'll remember that first line. Um, so the first line of Jacaranda is, Peggy Smart was 90% sure it was Monday. And so, you know, with that, we've got the name Peggy Smart, you know, probably conjures up a certain age of, you know, you may have a, a, already a mental image of, of what this character's like. And 90% sure it was Monday. So there's almost an element of of doubt there. You know, oh, you know, what's going on with this woman? You know, she's not quite sure what day it is. So I think hopefully that uh, creates enough of interest you know, or would hook the reader's attention enough to think, well, why is she not sure exactly what the day of the week is? And Mrs. Winterbottom takes a gap here. The first couple of lines of that are... Dr. Heather Winterbottom often joked that she'd fallen half an hour behind on her first day. And 40 years later, she was still trying to catch up. She always apologised for keeping her patients waiting, even on the rare occasions her appointments ran to time. So I suppose what with that, we know that the character is a, a doctor. We know that doctors always run late. And so we're already in her mind. And we know that she is you know, someone who is probably very conscious about her patients. She's probably puts a lot more time into people than than she really can afford. And you know she's obviously someone who puts other people first. We know that she's late in her career. She's sort of 40 years into it. So I think there's a sort of similarity in a way. I I sort of introduced the name of the character and initially a bit of their problem as well.
0: That's the other thing I was going to say too, both of those openings set a bit of a tone as well for Peggy. You know, it's funny too, that she's only 90% sure that it's Monday. You know, that's that's a funny line. So I feel like I know what sort of a story I'm going to get. It's going to be witty. With Mrs. Winterbottom too, just reading that whole first paragraph, it does a lot of the work of setting up the inciting incident as well, doesn't it? Can I just read on a little more there? Yes, no, please um, do. What's more, her face, with its harried arrangement of frown lines and downturned mouth, had taken on an expression of permanent contrition. All that was about to change. Today, on her last ever day as a doctor, she would take back those 30 precious minutes and add them to the rest of her life. There was an entire world beyond Netherwood Medical Centre, so many things she wanted to do and see. This day marked the beginning of a whole new chapter in her life, if not a whole new life. But first... She had to remove a cotton bud from Mr. Clifton's left ear. (laughs) Again, beautiful setup. Um, And you're just giving us her whole world there. Like that, that first paragraph works really hard. Like, as you say, we know she's a doctor. We also know now that she's about to retire. So that's sort of the inciting incident. She has these very big expectations for her new life, as she calls it. Um, but the other thing I really like about that opening image is that you go from very big picture and giving us all the information we need to a real close-up. And I think that's what best openings do as well. They zoom in and you're taking us from there straight into the action. There's just so it's such an accomplished opening. I feel like it achieves a lot.
1: Well, thank you for that. That That's lovely. It's, it's hard, isn't it, to, you know, g- get a real flavour Without necessarily that info dump at the beginning, so I suppose maybe what I was doing there was actually giving a, a picture of what she had in her mind for the future, rather than sort of what you know it hints to what the past has been, without it necessarily being a you know flashback or anything. It, it's sort of um, you know it, it's juxtaposing what what her life has been like with what she hopes it will be like, which of course nothing's ever going to go according to to plan mm-hmm. isn't it but you you know i suppose instantly what what the character at least in theory wants mm-hmm.
0: is that something that you work on a lot that first
1: page that first paragraph i try not to spend too much time on it it's very tempting isn't it to get the the first page absolutely perfect and i think sometimes the first line will just come perfectly and the rest yeah just over time sometimes you'll need to go back knowing what you know later in the novel, going back to the beginning and perhaps dropping that hint in earlier. Uh, so nothing is set in stone. I like to try and keep the momentum of writing forward. But um I think often the other thing that that um it just occurred to me is that when you're asked to do a reading, it's often from the very beginning of the book and so if you're going to have to read your work over and over it's very tempting isn't it to you know read it and want to change something whatever so I think it's really important to get that first first scene right or whatever your first reading is going to be Um, so just so when you're reading it aloud to an audience uh, you're not constantly checking yourself so it has to do a lot it's asking a lot of of a short bit of writing and I think that that you know, it comes with, you know, experience, I suppose, but it's still, uh, it's still going to be different for every book.
0: Yeah. So what comes first for you in the process of developing the idea into a novel? Is it the structure or the characters or the setting?
1: It's usually character. And I think we've joked about this before, that often the characters are so fully fledged and formed, but They sit around waiting for something to happen, you know, drinking tea. And I think the reason for that is, you know, it may be my background as a doctor in that it mirrors what happens in a consultation. You know, somebody will walk in, I'll get a brief uh, physical picture of what they're like. Um, But they'll, you know, after initial introduction, they will present the problem. Um, you know, through asking a few questions of the patient or the character, you know, we'll learn a little bit of backstory and, and sort of fill in the rest as they go. And it's not, you know, until later that you get a broader picture of, of what the whole scene and setting is. You know, it comes down to um, getting a feeling of that character straight away. And I suppose this just comes also from a, a natural interest in, in people, what makes people sick. See- uh, tick. um and sick, a, and <laughs> sick, sick and sick. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I heard somewhere it said that one characteristic that writers often have is that they're isolated as children, and not necessarily geographically isolated, but socially isolated. And you know how many writers have said that they were the bookish kid in the library on their own at lunchtime, and and that I certainly was I was much more of an observer I was always on the periphery you know sitting at the edge of the playground you know watching the other kids and and that's the sort of skill that maybe I um, had just just trying to understand you know how friendships worked how people worked and uh, and that's something I suppose that's I've brought to the writing is that I'm often um, have the character before I know what they're going to do or where they are interestingly I don't always know what they're characters look like um physical description if you read the books there's often not a great deal of physical description of the the characters uh, and i you know may not know what color their eyes are or or what color their hair is or how long their hair is other than i might know that they've struggled with their hair all their life you know and they've wasted uh so much money on products and they never find a hairdresser that suits them or they just don't care about their hair but i won't necessarily know what color it is and i think we're all aware of that sort of laziness of looking character looking in the mirror and assessing her hair and her eyes or whatever so i think that comes from being inside the character and looking out through the character's eyes at the outside world but that comes from that close third person point of view so yeah it's often i know a lot about the character uh, and and yeah sometimes i struggle with the rest of it what what happens <laughs> later on
0: you're right, though, I, I've been reading a few books lately where the character is described, the, the physical description, and I think, actually,
1: I didn't need to know that. Mm. So- I think you have to leave room for the reader, don't you? And, the, you know, every reader will have their own mental picture of what a character looks like, even what a setting looks like, even if you describe it. And I think to be too prescriptive, a lot of... um Authors, when they see their covers, particularly if it has a woman on or a character on the front, often get a bit confronted if it, it's not exactly how they'd imagine the character. So, I, I just like to leave that room uh, for for the imagination. And like you say, any description probably should have
0: a place there. Like it needs to work to show a characteristic or to show something they've struggled with. Or I, I had a very. Strong mental image of Mrs. Winterbottom, of Alan, of Kevin, um, all the characters. Yeah, I, I can see them all, but not because you've described them in huge detail. So, yeah.
1: yeah. And it's one of those writing rules that I think it's okay to break as well. I remember, you know, I was taught uh, create a bio of the, you know, there are often these templates, you know, that the, the whole character Description, you know, how tall are they? What colour are their eyes? You know, what kind of clothes do they wear? And those things, they're they are important, but they're not as important as what goes on inside the character's head. What's happened? You know, how these uh things that have already happened to them a- affect you know their decisions and their motivations. Do you do that
0: at all? Do you write those? bios down and or have any kind of character profile just in terms of what's happened to them in their childhood or mm-hmm. their wound or whatever it might be?
1: I try to. With my very first novel with the single ladies of Jacaranda, Retirement Village, I remember I searched the internet and magazines for pictures of the characters and I cut them out and I put them all on a mood board and, and I researched Um, pictures of motorbikes and things like that so I had it all there but I think I've got I rely less and less on that the wound I think is is perhaps more important and I think there, there won't necessarily be one wound for that character I think there's a saying that we spend our adulthood trying to repair the wounds of our childhood and I think to a degree that's true. Lisa Cron in her uh, book The Story Genius talks about this and how you know we, we're wired for for story and our whole lives um, are revolve around story and sort of in a way trying to make sense of what has happened to us in the past and you know particularly the sort of some seminal moments in our lives, or, or, or things they may even just be a, a conversation or a thing that, that happened to it, and they inform you, you know, almost your whole personality if you're young, but also you know the way that you can be protective or the way that you act in relationships and your interactions with other people all the way through your life. You can be still trying to mend those wounds, and even with my characters in their 80s and 90s, they're still. Um, you know, their lives are still, you know, partly a a representation of what happened to them many, many years ago.
0: And some of the backstories of your characters are, you know, a little bit heartbreaking. I'm thinking of Hattie, you know, she's just such a very lonely character and has been really her whole life, hasn't she, and The Great Escape from... I, I always shorten your book names in my head like they're stable names, like they're racehorses. Um, but The Great Escape from Woodland's Nursing Home.
1: Yeah, sometimes get get them all a bit mixed up. But I gave her a prologue in that book. It's the very, only mm-hmm. prologue I've ever written. And I usually, again, another piece of the writing advice is avoid prologues. But I think sometimes it can be useful. And that is something that happened to her immediately before she went into the nursing home but really what has shaped her are you know her childhood experiences of you know being an only child um, a mother that died when she was very young and uh, her looking after an alcoholic father so yes all of those things have you know caught up with her as she's about to turn 90 and, and they formed her personality you know those wounds from early on
0: Yeah, and how she overcomes that and kind of draws on the inner strength that she didn't know she had from all those years of having to be so resilient. Exactly.
1: That's the other thing about a wound, isn't it? That, you know, you develop resilience from that.
0: Yeah, and it gives the character somewhere to go in the story. And that's what creates the character arc. And one of the beautiful characteristics of your novels is the characters do all have these beautiful character arcs. Very, very satisfying at the end to see how they've come through their challenges and it evolved. Just beautiful. Even some of the minor characters. Um, everyone needs to go and read all of your books, Joe. They'll they'll oh. get a sense of <laughs> <laughs> oh, what well, it means. You. I'd like to talk to you about voice because that's one of the things I think you also do really well is establish the voices of your characters. Does that develop on the page in the writing or? again, do you do a lot of thinking about that beforehand?
1: A little bit of both. I don't start writing until I have a really good idea of the character and, you know, what what they want, which we know is not necessarily what they need, but, you know, what their initial um, problem is. Um, And I like to give them a quirk of some sort. Uh, different characters have a, a different quirk, or a, you know something that's very characteristic of them. Um, Mrs. Henry Parker. I don't think it's a spoiler to say she's living with memory loss with dementia, and it's how she adapts to her world that doesn't make sense. But she does it in a way that you know I wanted to show that she still had some agency and ability to entertain people, and uh, you know hopefully entertain the the reader. And with Peggy Smart in the very first book, The Jacaranda Retirement Village, she has a sort of, we call it a speech impediment, but she tends to mix up her metaphors and things. I think we call it malapropisms. So, you know, she will say, don't upset the apple tart instead of the apple cart. And uh, that characteristic came quite late. I had Peggy Smart and I'd written several drafts and it was almost... The final draft, when that just suddenly occurred to me and and the opportunity to put that through, it came very naturally. It wasn't something that I could have forced in an earlier draft, I think. It's almost like getting to know the characters so well that they reveal another facet of their, um, their character to you. So i like to give them something that's unique.
0: With Mrs. Henry Parker, when she's getting back on board the ship where she's living, on the gangway, the security guard there, Reuben, says, may I see your cruise card, please? Evelyn stiffened at what looked like a gun in his hand. A young couple stepped impatiently in front of her and handed over the blue and white plastic cards that hung from their necks on gaudy wo- woven tapes bearing the Sunset cruiser's logo. Many passengers wore them. They had a name, lanterns, halyards, lanyards. And then she refers to it going on as the lantern halyard lanyard. <laughs> Is <laughs> <It's> a bit <laughs> a tongue twister. Also funny.
1: She was a fascinating character to to write. Actually, the, you you know you have to suspend disbelief in in a way that you realise how confusing the world could be if you didn't know, and how your brain would work to make connections. You know, she's uh, can't find her husband on this ship, and you know she really has to go back to the beginning and sort of retrace her steps, and a sort of semi. Logical way in a way, but you know that a lot of it doesn't make sense, and it's uh, you know just looking at the world through you know a different pair of eyes. As a writing exercise, writing that character was a wonderful experience.
0: Yeah, I, I imagine it would be, and there, there is a sort of mystery element all the way through that novel too, and. What about with the tea ladies? So you have three points of view there, two women of a certain age, one slightly older than the other, but then and a young woman as well. So obviously it's easier to get the young woman's voice to sound different. But how do you then differentiate between the other
1: two voices? Was that a challenge at all? Yes, I suppose the the major challenge, particularly if you have two characters of the same gender. I mean, you can just put their name at the beginning of the scene or the the chapter, but it's really important to to get that. That's why I think you have to have a sense of that character before you start writing them and giving them a unique characteristic. So um, in that story, uh, Hillary is the the stalwart. She's been there for many years. She runs a tight ship um, and she's quite regimented and inflexible. And initially, I think, relatively unlikable character hopefully by the end of the novel she becomes a more sympathetic character I She, so. as we understand her her reasons for being the way she is and liking things done in a certain way and being resistant to to change um so I had to sort of juxtapose her with a different character and, and so create a joy uh who in a way is her complete opposite she is bubbly, she's outgoing, she's infinitely apologetic because she's uh, clumsy and she's always late and she's chattery. So they are polar opposites. And they were both really enjoyable to write for those differences. Um, A lot of people said that they loved the character of joy. And she was, she was a joy to write. But, you know, you you can't have all characters who are like that. You have to, you know, have that light and, and shade. And so creating the other character um there's the obviously the elements of their speech the way they speak. they're in dialogue it's it can be clear who's speaking without necessarily attaching those dialogue tags to them um and I think that that's something you get really when you do get a sense of the character but you can make it easier for yourself by creating quite different characters as you say the teenager has a different vernacular anyway and a different voice and and that's sort of easier to create that difference between uh, ages but um no it's 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 a real it's an exercise in in looking for the difference particularly in speech patterns
0: joe you don't just write about women you also do men beautifully and i'd love you to read a little section from the great escape from woodland's nursing home between two of the men murray and walter murray is quite ill Walter is quite naughty. He's the naughty one in the nursing home, isn't he? He's always racing around on his scooter and getting into trouble. But I just thought this was a beautiful exchange between them and a really good example of how you handle dialogue and how that helps to differentiate characters, but also just it's just a great example of dialogue and I just would love you to read it if you can. Yeah. Um, we should also say that the Woodlands nursing home is set out like a monopoly board and all the rooms are named after different streets in a monopoly. So.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you for, for that. Uh, yeah, look, um, male friendship was something that I particularly wanted to explore in this book. The tenderness, I think, between men are often, uh, you know, their relationships or their friendships can be based on banter, but it can reveal sometimes a deep affection, I think. Yeah,
0: and I, I think you do that so well. This is just such a great example
1: of that. Okay. Around the corner in Bond Street, Murray was lying in bed. Walter crept in, eyes adjusting slowly to the dimmed overhead LEDs. You awake? Murray turned his head and gave a weak smile. Always. Not keen on the alternative, my friend. Mind if I join you? my guest do me a favor and untuck the bedclothes would you I've got cramp in my leg leaving his walker at the door Walter shuffled forward and pulled the sheet and bed cover to the side Murray's big toe was curled unnaturally the muscles in his lower leg in taut spasm it looked bloody painful and without much thought Walter stretched the toe back and massaged his friend's chin there you go mate he said withdrawing his hand as swiftly as possible Besides the liver-spotted handshake they exchanged on first meeting, the two men had never actually touched each other. It wasn't what blokes like them did. They agreed without having to say it. Women were far better at that touchy-feely stuff. Murray released a clenched breath. Oh, thank you. You are a true gentleman. I don't know about that, said Walter, licking his lips. I'm here for purely selfish reasons. I'm feeling thirsty. (laughs) Bottom of the cupboard next to the bed, Murray smiled knowingly. Just a drop. I'll leave the rest for you. Don't worry. Fill your boots, Walter. Shadows disguised Murray's gaunt features, but there was no escaping the wince. Why don't you just say yes to the pain medication the doctor recommended? He twisted his dressing gown cord around his fingers. Murray would know he'd been eavesdropping. Not that there were any secrets in this place. He added... Geez, there are plenty of blokes here who'd pay a fortune for stuff like that on the black market. No drugs, said Murray decisively. Not yet. A glimpse of the forthright teacher, enough for Walter to drop the subject. It's a beautiful passage. How
0: does it feel to read through those passages again? Because that's something, you know, that was your
1: third book three books ago. Yes. It's funny. I think that you go through stages when you finish writing a book. You know, you know you've you've done all the drafts and rewritten and rewritten. You're sort of so sick of it, and then you come to the promotion and uh, the publicity, and there's rereading it, and there's sort of oh goodness, I wish I could change that now, but it's too late. You've done the proofreading, all gone off, and then after a period of time, sometimes I don't go back and reread them, but occasionally like on an opportunity like this to open and reread i suppose it's like visiting revisiting an old friend and 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 sometimes there's that lovely feeling that, okay that actually wasn't too bad you know you you have that distance from it i think where you're no longer dwelling on what's wrong with it and what you'd still like to change because let's face it a, you know book is never finished is it it's only uh, abandoned i don't know who said that but you, know, you could go on editing forever um, so, no, it, it's quite nice. It's like it's like visiting old friends. I think, to just reading that
0: because, as you know, I'm in draft mode at the moment myself with a novel, and it's very tempting to add dialogue tags to every piece of dialogue. And so reading through that section when I was looking for it just reminded me it's okay, you don't have to include a dialogue tag on everything everybody says, and not only that, just don't add a tag for one thing or add an action instead of a dialogue tag, which I think is also just a really smart way of getting some action in there as well and placing us, the reader, in in kind of placing us in place. Does that make sense?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a great way to, because it really just, a, a, you know, a solid block of dialogue can be exhausting to read just as a solid block of uh, exposition can be, you know, it's best broken up. So I think, you know, it's just to mix it up, sometimes have some dialogue tags, sometimes have some action. You know, I think it's just keeping it um, varied and, and, and fresh on the page.
0: Yeah. Like here where you say, Murray released a clenched breath. Thank you. You are a true gentleman. You know, there's no dialogue tag there, but the fact that he's releasing a clenched breath, shows us that he was in pain. So it's telling us something about him and what what he's up to. Thank you, Joe. That was beautifully read too. Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was structure. As I mentioned earlier, I was surprised when I went back through all your novels to see that they all have slightly different structures. So in Jacaranda, now I am For the sake of time, because I know we're going to be rambling on for a long time today, I'm just going to shorten the names of the books. Is that okay? Please do. (laughs) We'll have the full list in the show notes, people. So if you need to know the full names, that's where you'll find them. So in Jacaranda, we have a single point of view, Peggy, uh, interspersed with a few flashbacks throughout. So we get a little bit of her, her story from the past. Um, in Mrs. Henry Parker, we alternate between present day written in third person to past sections written in first person, all by Mrs. Henry Parker. In The Great Escape, we alternate between two characters, Hattie and Walter, and they're all written in present day. Then in The Tea Ladies, there are three points of view, as we mentioned earlier, all present day. And in Mrs. Winterbottom, the whole story is told from Heather's point of view, with dedicated chapters set in the past, so we kind of do a bit of a present, 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 past, present, present, past, present, 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 past. How do you decide on the structure or does that evolve in the writing?
1: I think it evolves to a degree. I think we all have a natural maybe writing style or writing voice in which we're most comfortable and mine, the type of books that I like to read and, and I suppose my natural uh, inclination in writing is to write in third person point of view but a sort of close third person and I think that's maybe because uh, that third person I'm more used to observing others. Um, I think per- first person works very well for some genres particularly where uh, you know perhaps it's a younger character and it, it you know I think it creates a sense of you know urgency and particularly it may be in crime or um, you know, some genres. I think that really suits the style, but that doesn't contribute to the the pace for me. So I feel more comfortable um, in that third person and the point. Different points of view. I think that comes down to the story itself. So I yeah, like having multiple characters. We, we you know we talked about the the challenges of you know creating differences and uh, uniqueness between those characters. I think it's important when you're writing from different points of view to keep the story moving to not necessarily, you know, describe something that's already happened, it's been described by one character, to go back but it's to choose and not necessarily having to alternate between the characters in a very strict sense, but it's like who who is best uh, placed to tell this part of the story and to move this part of the the plot on. So I think in The Great Escape, it's almost exactly alternating chapters. But in The Tea Ladies it's not. It's like who of the three characters uh, It does this part of the, the book belong to? So it's got to keep the pace, and that can be a challenge when changing points of view. The other thing with multiple points of view, although I find it harder, it's I found it's a great opportunity to create moments of comedy actually a good opportunity for that because you can look at the mismatched interpretations of what's going on so one character will experience this and then you're immediately in the head of the next character and they've seen it in a completely different way Um that, that can be jarring but it can also be a, a opportunity for for humor actually and to create uh, a, a, a deepest understanding of, of character too. So that's that's something I like to do.
0: Which structure gave you the most trouble?
1: I think the, the three points of view. Uh, I love a challenge though. I think if I were naturally just to write one book over and over again, it would probably be uh, what feels my most comfortable structure would be a third person, close point of view, uh, with occasional chapters or scenes as flashbacks, you know, to create the, a little bit of backstory and and um, understanding of the character. So, but I don't like to keep. You know, who likes to keep writing the same thing every time? So I think, I, you know, to to get my interest, I have to challenge myself a bit. I think we all do, don't we? You have to try something different, and I'm I'm not into necessarily experimental structure i know that there are a lot of um very very more literary writers who do that superbly and and explore that very interesting way of of structuring i think you know we've talked about your structure as well michelle which sounds fascinating and and a joy to read as well Um, but i've got so many elements going on in my head that i don't like to think too much about about structure so i tend to try and keep it simple
0: yeah. And so your preferred structure, I think we can safely say Mrs Winterbottom followed that structure, close third person yep. view with dedicated flashback chapters.
1: Yes, that's right. So the that would actually be very similar to the, my first book, yeah. So my yeah. first and my fifth were yeah. very similar in structure.
0: Well, what's the sixth going to be? Are we up for another challenge or are we going to go
1: back to Comfortville? Oh, yeah, still... Still in the thinking stage (laughs) at the moment. No pressure. (laughs) So
0: speaking of structure, are you a plotter? I know that you do do a little bit of outlining for your stories. Can you tell us how that works and what process
1: works for you? Still trying to find that. (laughs) Trying to find the easy way to write a novel because I found all the hard ways to write. I found five hard ways to write a, a, a novel. I've tried various iterations of plotting and pantsing, And I think like, I think there's very few writers who are either purely plotters or purely pantsers. I think most of us have a mixture uh, of both of those. I always have at the back of my mind, a sort of mental picture of what the three acts structure as uh, just a sketch really on just a framework to, to put the novel. And Uh, And that's almost become a subconscious thing. My other tool, if I need, if I am struggling with structure, and sometimes I do this later if I'm doing a a structural edit, you know, after maybe the first or second draft, I did an online course a few years ago with Ebony McKenna, and she did a course called Writing with Scene Cards, and I'm sure it's an interpretation of the many craft books that have written you know various beats of the the story. But she uses thirteen scene cards, and these are key scenes. And I think she originally used it to structure romance novels, but it works equally well for any kind of contemporary novel. And I wrote these out on um, yellow, and they're looking very tatty now. Uh, yellow palm cards. And uh, the first one would be opening image, and this would be my heroine's usual world, you know, work, rest and play environment, a single scene. The next one, you know, I've even written down here 9,000 words, that would be 10% through the novel, you know, disturbance, something upsets the apple cart. But also I've got on here a pat the dog moment, you know, so I know during this part I have to make my character do something that's sympathetic you know the traditional sort of pat the dog create that sort of sympathy with the reader so it goes on through various beats there's a a midpoint and then a sort of final closing image so I have those written out on palm cards I then actually put all the other scenes one color for the present day timeline and one for flashbacks and when I Sort of feeling that the structure is not quite balanced, I will lay them all out on the floor and I will put a number of scenes under each one of these and I can see where there are holes. I can see it's very heavy in this part of the novel and it needs to be fleshed out in this part. So I try not to be too didactic about it, but it's really helped me to sort of uh, maintain a, a scaffold, because I am one who can tend to go off down the wrong, wrong rabbit hole and get you know, can get distracted in the sidetrack. So I just need, when I need to centre again, I come back to my thirteen scene cards. And so yeah, that's a very visual tool that I I use. But invariably, I start off with that. But then you know, I, I pants the scene. You know, I plot. I know what the scene's going to be, but I don't necessarily know exactly what's going to happen in that scene.
0: But I love that because it does give you that structure to come back to, to hang your pantsing off, if you like, because, you know, if you plotted out an entire scene beat by beat, that, that might be a little bit too dull, right? It doesn't give you that creative license to just sort of go off on those tangents. So, you're still allowed to do that when you're writing yeah. the scene, but then you can come back and go, oh, that hangs under this beat. So, that's great. You know, that's perfect.
1: Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think it's most important not necessarily to know what happens in the scene because you don't know necessarily before you write it, but what the scene needs to do. And another course I did with uh, Kate Forsyth, a fantastic writing teacher, of course, who you've um, already interviewed. But she would say, you know, the scene needs to do at least two things, you know, whether it's advance the plot, reveal backstory, um, reveal character. And so, you know, a scene has a job to do and you know the the joy is sort of getting into that scene and thinking okay where's it going to go i know it's got to do this and i know it has to get me from a to b but i just don't know what's going to happen in that scene to make that happen
0: this is where i sometimes have to just get out and go for a walk because when you sit down to write a scene and you you know that what it's got to achieve it's got to advance the plot or reveal some character How do you know where to start? I mean, you often start with a bit of action, right? The character's doing something or they're saying something. Sometimes there's a bit of a summary. Does it just come to you to sort of think there, looking up into the universe?
1: Sometimes it doesn't come and I have to go for a (laughs) walk as well. But I think, you know, the last scene will have set up the next scene. So I tend to write a scene at a time and when I'm in first draft mode, that will be a scene a day. So it won't necessarily be a a word count or a time. I will know it's a scene. And and the setup will have been left at the end of the previous day's writing. So I'll know where that one is and I'll know what the next scene roughly needs to do. So I'll have had overnight and almost a subconscious time, maybe during sleep to kind of think about, okay, tomorrow I'm going to write this scene. What's going to happen? And, um, And there's enough time. I I don't think I could sit down at the keyboard and say, right now I'm going to decide what happens and and write it. So I think it's almost set up in advance from the previous scene on the previous day's writing. So I'm just
0: looking at Mrs. Winterbottom now and um, chapter two ends with so (laughs) Alan, Heather's husband, has decided he's going to plant things and do a lot of gardening and he's Getting a little bit experimental with breakfast as well. <laughs> and then so in Chapter 3, it starts, Fortunately, by the end of the first week of the rest of his life, Alan was back to toast and marmalade for breakfast. The novelty of the kippers had worn off, he'd confessed, although Heather suspected it was more the novelty of having to scrub his own fishy pan each morning. And then you're often running with the trip to the supermarket and
1: how their life is going to look. It's, a, it's the opportunity to jump in time as well, to, you know, give a brief, you know, almost in a couple of lines to kind of summarise or react to what's happened before. But, you know, we're now a week later. I find within a scene it's really hard to, or within a chapter, to jump forward, you know, several months or whatever. So I think um, often the beginning of a the scene, there's an opportunity in that first couple of sentences to summarise a period of time and, and to, to step forward in the plot.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point because it is really hard to know when to use scene versus summary. Mm. And you do need, like I'm actually at that point right now where I, I need to go forward a few weeks and it's really hard to know how to start the scene to do that. I think I've got my head around it, but, yeah, it is it is tricky. And you've somehow got to convey <laughs> that a week or so has passed. And, uh, yeah, you've done a really good job of that. By the end of the first week, Alan had decided he was back to toast and marmalade, so we know a week has passed.
1: Yeah, because I, I find that really hard. Now, when I'm reading a book, I'm often looking at how other how authors have done that, how have they signified a move forward. And sometimes it could just be later that day you know, in the, if you're doing it in the middle of a scene, sometimes I'll just use later or, um, but at the beginning of a scene, I you know, that that's a, a, a useful way for me, but I don't think I've perfected it. I think we're all still, we're all still learning, aren't we? We are lifelong learners as writers. We
0: are. We're always talking about the latest writing book that someone's got something out of and we instantly go out and buy it and go, God, well, we just need to keep writing and stop reading these writing books. But... Sometimes it's just one little useful thing that you get out of it like that. Ebony McKenna, you know, and Mm. I will link to that in the show notes, but um, you've sort of taken that and really adapted that and run with it and keep referring back to that. And who knew that
1: a little book by Ebony McKenna. It's a very short book, but she also does a couple of webinars, which you can find on YouTube as well. And and I think that's the key if you're stuck somewhere is actually just to, get yourself out of the story, and we all joke to I read another craft book. Um, but it could be to listen to uh, a podcast or, you know, uh, do a workshop or, you know, find something, a different way to come at it. Um, and often the answer is there. It's just, about, you know, just to change the way you, you're looking at a problem.
0: You mentioned before about Lisa Crone's book, The Story Genius. So she's got a great technique for... Uh, dealing with backstory, which I mm. have always struggled a little bit with. Um, and we all sort of came to Lisa Cron only recently as well. And her book's fantastic on that. So we've talked a lot about backstory.
1: I think it's something that we, yeah, in the process of of working out, we've you know, there's so many different rules about backstory, aren't there? You know, all these writing rules, like some say some people say you should never use backstory. Uh, Some say you should use it, but very sparingly. As long as we avoid the info dump, that's what we want to do. But you know, some didactic rules: never in the first three chapters, never in the first ten thousand words. Then what do you do? And I think it makes sense to hook the reader in, get the momentum going, get the you know get the reader into the world. And if you use backstory too much, then I think you can uh, you know ruin that momentum, pull somebody out of the story. But you know, backstory is essential, as Elisa Kranz says in her book. You know, it's it's everything really. It provides the motivation for why the character what they want what they wants what they want in the first place, why they fear what they fear, and you know, it, it influences all their decisions. So, unless we have some backstory, those things don't necessarily make sense. And um, I think one thing I got from her book, and I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, but I think one of the exercises was to write three scenes before you start the main novel. And they might be key events in that character's life. You know, maybe when they were eight years old, their their mother left, or, you know, when they were 20, they had their heart broken for the first time, or or something, you know, three sort of key events that you can use in the story. You can use them as, uh, you know, as flashbacks, or as I tend to do, you know, use them as standalone chapters within the the structure or you may not actually even end up using them more than just a paragraph perhaps or even just a thought or a a memory but I think you need to know that before you can you know fully know your your character so I found that a really useful tool. I'll
0: link to Lisa's book as well because I found it also really useful Um, I think you are very good at weaving in backstory, Joe. not just in the books where you've done the dedicated chapters, but with The Great Escape and The Tea Ladies, it's woven into the present day story. Mm. So I just wanted to just show the listeners an example of where I thought you did a great job of weaving it in. I'd love you to read a little section from the very beginning, actually, uh, just to show how you have woven in the backstory between Hilary, who's one of our main characters, and we're in her point of view, um, being driven to the hospital and dropped off to the hospital by her uh, older
1: sister by six years, Nancy. I do wish you'd let me drive for a change, Hilary said. You've seen how dangerous the roads are around here. You have enough stress in your life already. I mean, with all your money, your friends and your dignity gone, all you really have left is your little job at the cafeteria. Nancy reached over and squeezed her knee. And me, you'll always have me, she said. Her spotted hand, which should have been on the steering wheel, was little more than a thin glove of bones. In the 10 minutes that they'd left the house, Hilary had counted 18 occasions when Nancy had removed both hands simultaneously from the wheel. This included three bouts of coughing, two attempts to dislodge the jammed-in dashboard lighter, and once to extinguish a small fire in her lap. The other times were a miscellaneous assortment of personal readjustments, obscene hand gestures to other drivers, and an expletive-laden attempt to revive the defunct speedometer. Judging by the angle of her seat, tilted so far forward that her bony sternum almost touched the steering wheel, Nancy's eyesight wasn't great either. Hillary knew better than to pass comment. If the past 76 years had taught her anything, it was that Nancy had an answer for everything. Take the coughing and wheezing. I'm allergic to next door's cat, she'd respond. Or her over-reliance on prescription sleeping tablets. It's the worry. When asked what she had to worry about, she'd answer, you, Hillary, I'm worried about you ending up lonely and abandoned, especially now you've lost your looks. As for the squalid state of the old family home they now shared, you wouldn't understand poverty, Hill. You have a big house and a rich husband. Then she'd backtrack. Sorry, had a big house, had a rich husband. Nancy had waited a long time for this moment, and she was entitled to her schadenfreude. And Hilary knew it was no more than she deserved. She was past the disbelief and anger stage. The hurt and betrayal had left her numb more than anything. She was merely clinging to the wreckage of her former life and trying not to sink. This was usually Hillary's cue to recite her debt of gratitude speech about how she'd never fully repay Nancy for staying at home to care for their elderly parents, pointing out gently that she'd tried to make life easier by helping with the bills and expenses, stopping short of reminding her that even the blue bomb had been a gift back when it was a solid, low mileage, roadworthy vehicle and not a death trap that would surely have their mechanic father rolling in his grave. At least the engine was still running, unlike her luxury convertible that had failed to even start that morning. Hugh Nancy's I could have been speech. Now she could have been a doctor or a lawyer, a catwalk model, even an astronaut if she hadn't sacrificed everything so Hillary could run away and marry Jim. They were two seasoned actors following a script in a long running play and the curtain never really went down.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe. I love that. She's very honest, isn't she, Nancy? I'm worried about you ending up <laughs> lonely and abandoned, especially now you've lost your looks. Oh, she's the queen of
1: the sort of the backhanded compliment. She was a great character to write to, a really, really fun because she's so awful in so many ways. I think, uh, you know, those extreme characters are always so much fun.
0: So much fun. I love that. So really in two pages you've shown us right at the start the state of the relationship between the sisters, both of their personalities are very evident and on display there. We get a sense of Hillary's fall from grace. Um, and it's enough to pique our interest as to why. Why has she, What's happened to her? Her car's no longer in the study. She had a rich husband. She had a beautiful house. She obviously no longer has those things. So, that is also a lovely setup, a, w- a lovely way of using backstory to to pique our interest and to keep us reading as well. Just enough, but not too much.
1: there's different ways I suppose that you can put in backstory isn't it you know Mm. know, sometimes it's a an object can uh, provoke a memory sometimes it is dialogue that can tell us a lot without doing the and when I was born
0: in 1924 and you were born in 1930 therefore giving us a six-year age gap you know there's none of that sort of boring dates or um, obvious info dumping in there which which is very good Joe. Obviously, after all the drafting comes the editing. Can you take us through your editing process and then some of the editorial process that you go through with your publisher?
1: Sure. Yes. I love editing. I know not everybody does. I feel certain the creativity is obviously there in initially in writing the, the story, but I I write through so quickly, I don't stop and edit as I go along. So my first drafts are very messy, full of holes, plot holes, errors, timeline inconsistencies, name changes. But I just know I've got to get through that. It's almost like I'm sort of anxious to get to the end. And once it's there, I feel like I can take a breath and then go, okay, now I can really put the meat on the bones and look at it. Um, And, you know, even my husband is now used to saying to me, oh, what can't you edit oh you can't edit a blank page it's true so once I've got through that messy first draft um I leave it aside for as long as possible which usually means you know not very long because I'm behind on the deadline so even if it's a week um that gives you a little bit of breathing space and that um that distance I then print it out and read it as a reader you know put the big girl pants on this is going to hurt but I've got to do it read it as a reader not even have a pen in my hand when I do that then I'll go back to the beginning and mark it up as I read through so there'll be you know pen on the page post-it notes there'll be you know um, notes in a a notebook I'm thinking of all the things that I want to the the thoughts that have come to me the things I want to change in the next draft Um, and then I'll rewrite the the next draft keeping the good bits but sometimes rewriting a lot of things changing uh adding scenes taking some out um and i'll often do that a couple of times and so some books you know i think can have four or five six uh drafts i don't think i've ever managed to do it in in less than four and then getting it to a stage where uh either if there's time um, beta readers to to get on board and uh, give me their thoughts uh, before I hand it in to the submit it to the publisher and that's really only the beginning of the editing process it just means it's in a in a state that you know you're, you're happy for, for some professional person to read um, and I really enjoy working w- with professional editors from the publisher the first time it was you know, it was frightening. It was, um, you, you really, you have to put aside all your sensibilities and your, your pride and realize that what they're trying to do is not tell you how to rewrite it. Um, they're making suggestions for ways that they can improve it. And they're nearly always spot on. Even things in the beginning I think, no, I'm not changing that. I'm not deleting this scene. I'm holding on to the Pilates scene. And in the end, you realize after enough time, that actually the Pilates scene has to go because it doesn't advance the, the plot or it slows the pace down so those big scene um, edits you know, the structural edits or the developmental edits you tend to call them different things uh, they can hurt a little bit but they're also an opportunity to really you know polish up and uh, make the manuscript much stronger and then of course we get down to the uh, copy edit and and proofread. At which point, really, you're not meant to make major changes. <laughs> but of, of course, up until the last minute, I'm wanting to add words and and change things around. So I think we've now got a working relationship between the editors and myself, where there's a little bit of give and take there. But I yeah, I really do value that, um, I, and I know that you've had some experiences as well, Michelle. I don't know if you if you found that useful too.
0: Yeah, I think developing the characters a little bit more in that sort of structural sense was good. And also pacing is my, I'm a bit of a waffler as well and I do like a bit of backstory. (laughs) I like stories that have backstory, actually. I love novels that have backstory. But, yeah, sometimes it can slow the pace down and that's my sort of downfall. So I know with Mrs Winterbottom it was quite a radical rewrite, are you happy to
1: talk about what the main problem was there? Yes, yes, of course. And I think this is not the first time this has happened to me where I have made major changes mm. after writing one or two uh, or in the case of Mrs. Winterbottom three drafts and having a you know story that really could have been um almost ready to go onto the you know professional editing stage but with The Last Voyage of Mrs. Henry Parker that was the decision I came to it was originally originally written from four different points of view and one of the characters was very much stronger than the other three and I decided on the third draft that I was actually going to rewrite the whole thing and just have this character Mrs. Henry Parker she was just such a fantastic character and I'm so pleased that I made that leap of faith and I did that um, in conjunction with the um the, the woman who was re- mentoring me at the time, the writer Valerie Parve, and she said, you'll know it's the right story when you feel it with your whole body. It's like a visceral experience. And once I started rewriting that story, it was a whole different experience. I should have learned from that and realized that when I had finished the second or third draft of, of Mrs. Winterbottom Takes a Gap here that it was fine uh, it was you know it had sort of fulfilled the brief in a way that i'd discussed with my publisher beforehand but it just didn't feel quite right and i'd polished it and polished it and felt that you know it was more just it needed another edit or it just needed a bit of polishing of the the grammar and on the sentence level without really stepping back and looking at the big structure and uh, sophie hannah is literary diagnostics doesn't she it's like really big picture stuff what is wrong with this novel and i submitted it to my publisher and i got uh, an, an email back which sort of was initially i was sort of shattered by which was like you know there is much to love here but i a sense that there's a much bigger story here and she was encouraging me to really rewrite the whole second half of the book and from the experience that this character had within a village uh, was to take the whole second half of the book to Greece um, so in the first uh, rendition of the book she had this virtual uh, trip to ancient Greece via a professor that she met uh, and in the second half, she really goes off and does almost a Shirley Valentine, heads off to Greece. And it felt it felt a huge uh, change and, and one that sort of quite frightened me. I'd never set a story in a, another country, really. They'd all been these quite closed communities. And, and it felt very daunting. But when I did that, when I rewrote it, it flowed and it was almost that that second half of that book rewrote itself. I'd almost felt that I'd over-edited the first half, really. So you can't. I think it is possible to over-edit and sort of edit yourself into a corner, almost, where you're not prepared to sacrifice all the work that you've already done for the sake of the bigger picture. But that's where listening to the advice of uh, somebody who can see it from a different point of view who can see the bigger picture, really, for me, it paid off. And um, that was a major edit, but it was the right one to do. And once I was on the right track, it it was so much easier. But I think what I learned from that experience was that often there's two options. You know, there's the safe option, the one you think you know you can do, um, and then the one you think you can't pull off. It's almost too big. It's too scary. but I think if I'd stuck with a safe option, my first option, I think it would have felt too safe for the reader too, you know, a little bit, you know, it could bore the reader, I suppose. I think if you, the feeling you get when you write is often the, feeling you're going to provoke in the reader so you know rewriting that whole second half was was thrilling it was exciting to me and and hopefully the 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 reader can can take that away as well so I often at the back of my mind I have that little mantra do the thing that scares you you know just go there and, and do the biggest thing that you can write write the biggest story you can
0: And I think also from our chats, when you were thinking about going to Greece, you realised that you actually did have some experience of of Greece, from you and John sailing over there, and and so you could draw upon those memories, but also by placing Heather again on a boat, a sailing boat, you're bringing her back into another closed environment in a way which is, Mm. you know, so you're being adventurous but also being safe because you're good at riding in those closed environments. Yeah, it's often
1: what you know when you break it down you say oh, actually I do have the tools I have the resources mm-hmm. to do this I have my own memory I have you know Google I have books you know I can do the research to do that and bring elements that I'm already comfortable with into that and so you can kind of tame the Beast if you if you like so I don't think there's ever a, a story that's too big and and unwieldy that you can't sort of bring that in and, you know, use it to your advantage. That's what I'm taking from this book and, and hopefully we'll go forward with that.
0: Well, I was going to ask you what uh, you've learned with this book and, and whether it taught you something new about writing. So I guess that's one of the things. Was there
1: anything else? I think, I think every, every novel teaches you something. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not always the lesson you need for the next book. So I think that... Uh, you you are accumulating uh, knowledge and experience and um, but it you know each book produces its own challenges unless you're generally rewriting the same book um, again and again and but I just like that thrill I, I like to try something new each time I need to be excited by the work you're a fairly fast
0: first drafter aren't you like how quickly would you get that first draft done
1: if I go scene by scene, that could be 1,500 to 2,000 words in the first draft. And I think once I'm into the story, it's slow at the beginning, it's laborious at the beginning, and then starts to speed up. And by the end, it, it feels sort of quite, um, uh, you know, quite pacey and and, and easy to, to do. So I suppose, in theory I could put out a first draft in, you know, as little as two, three months. It usually takes me longer than that because I'm a terrible tendency to procrastinate or I often, you know, gallop off down the wrong <laughs> track and need to do a, a U-turn and bring myself back to the, to the story. So I generally think about six months or so for a very decent draft. So mm. first draft, a couple of months and then several rewrites
0: yeah and what do you do when the writing isn't flowing you mentioned walking but is there anything else you do to kind of get those creative juices flowing again get yourself
1: onto the page um cry drink wine <laughs> send whatsapp messages to my writing group i think this is where you know having uh having a fellow writer someone who really understands what what that's like and uh you know I'm very fortunate with our writing group to to have uh, seven other writers who understand what it's like so so sharing that um often there's a point where i get stuck you know the beginning is very easy the first sentence oh, once i've got that that's brilliant and then I get to about 15 20000 words and it starts to you know that you get start to get towards that soggy middle and it feels like you know I've got to get through this it may be that I don't know the characters well enough but if I you know if I'm trying to push through I have to get myself permission to write rubbish just get the words down you know to silence that sort of inner perfectionist and you know avoid the natural tendency to overthink it Um so on a you know day-to-day basis you know in the moment to moment that might mean getting up and going have a cup of coffee or fold some laundry, which is great for procrastinating, but it's also quite good to take your mind off it if you're really just stuck. And walking, you know, I think we all recognize the creative uh, power of of walking. Um, The other thing I do, if I'm faced with a dilemma, I'm not sure what to do, how to get a character out of this situation or what this uh, very specific thing. And this is a technique or a tool that I use, learned from Valerie Pav, who again was my, my mentor for a year. And she uses 20 questions. So she said, get a piece of paper, write one to 20 down the side of the paper and write 20 options. Like, how am I gonna get my character out of this room? Okay, well, they could unlock the door and walk out. Um, they could crawl out they could go through the window uh you know to the almost to the point where you're writing ridiculous things an alien spacecraft could land above it and they could be zoomed up but before you get to number 20 invariably the right one appears and uh, i've used that time and time again not just for for instances like that but you know like uh you know, what could my character's quirk be, write down all the possible things I could think of. And um, and that's a way to kind of unstick myself as well. After do that 20 questions.
0: Sort of like being your own chat GPT,
1: but with your own brain. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also chat GPT, you know, and <laughs> I, I, you know, we could have a whole podcast oh, on goodness. chat GPT and, um, but, you know, it, it has a place, I suppose, and, you know, you could ask it 20 questions, like 20 ways I could, you know, make the next step, or what could happen next. And uh, I'd like to use my own brain a bit, keep that a bit active. I think
0: so. so it's probably better for keeping the, uh, the old gray matter active as well isn't it just using our own brain for our 20 questions I love that tip Joe that's that's a great tip in fact today has been full of great tips and lots of lovely resources and things for me to put into the show notes thank you so much the best resource of all of course is to read Joe's books because they will show you if you read them as a writer I think that they will show you a lot about how to how to do all of these things
1: thank you for your time today Joanna and Al. Oh, well, thank you, Michelle. It's been, as always, an absolute delight to chat to you and you could have gone on and on and on. And we definitely will pick this up again in the car on the way to Writers Group. Excellent. Looking forward to it.
0: And maybe we will start that series.
1: <laughs> mm, sounds good.
0: Have a wonderful Christmas. Thank you. I will see you soon. And best of luck with the next novel. And for 2024, I can't believe
1: it. Oh, well done, everyone. I think just... Look back and count your accomplishments and give yourself a little pat on the back, everyone. Happy Christmas.
0: There you go, Joanna Nell. Isn't she wonderful? I hope you got a lot out of that chat. I loved that concept of writing down 20 ideas to get yourself unstuck. Might have to give that a go this week. It's a little bit hard to find motivation after the holidays, isn't it? You can find Jo in all the places, starting with her website at joannanell.com. You'll find all the links, including where to buy Joanna's books, in the show notes. Now to my next guest. This year, I'm kicking off with the brilliant Laurie Steed. Laurie's memoir Love Dad came out a couple of months ago and his new collection of short stories Greater City Shadows is just about to come out with Fremantle Press and what better way to kick off the fourth season with short stories because we haven't done a deep dive in short stories and there's no better person to do that with than Laurie Steed. Laurie's an accomplished writing teacher and mentor as well as a writer so he really gets the craft of writing and he loves talking about it. Laurie and I have got to know each other a little bit over the last year and we always end up having these. Huge big chats about writing, not just about craft, but just the philosophy of writing and the psychology of writing and how we're feeling about writing. You're going to get so much out of this chat with Laurie, he's just wonderful. And of course, because his talent knows no bounds, he's also written a novel which came out a couple of years ago and is also fabulous, and that's called You Belong Here. I highly recommend you give that a read as well. Now, Greater City Shadows is the collection of short stories we're going to be talking about so let me tell you a little bit about it. A man treads water in the Swan River hoping to bring his friend back to shore. Three siblings gaze skyward in the hope of finding a comet. Bushfires sweep a Perth suburb while a woman, still burnt from a previous relationship lessens the divide between an individual and their community in tender evocative prose greater city shadows showcases the small but magnificent ways people find connection in australia one of the most isolated countries in the world exploring family friendship and identity in our post-pandemic culture this collection teases out the new reality in which we've found ourselves leading us back towards faith love and resilience These are hopeful, redemptive and at times profoundly uplifting stories about what it means to be human and to belong in an unpredictable, ever-changing society. So, if you have a question for Laurie about writing memoir, short stories or novels, please do send it in to me. You can send me a DM on Instagram or Facebook or there's a form on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com that you can fill in with your question. I love getting your questions and giving you a little shout out in the podcast. So send them over in the next couple of weeks. And as always, I'm giving away a copy of this month's book. Greater City Shadows with a thanks to Fremantle Press. All you have to do is subscribe to my newsletter and you'll go in the running to win. You'll find the sign up over at writersbookclubpodcast.com or michellebarackoff.com and all the details for the giveaway are on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, if you have already subscribed, don't worry, everyone's included in the draw. Okay, that's it for this month. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you would leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. And thank you to all the beautiful listeners who've already left amazing reviews. Slowly but surely, this little podcast is gaining an audience and I can't thank you people enough for spreading the word about it to other writers. I want to wish all of you the very best for 2024. I can't wait to bring you another year full of fabulous interviews with amazing writers. I'm recording on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garrigal people of the Eora Nation, where I'm lucky enough to live and work. I'll catch you next month. Until then, happy writing.